Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. I, I read an interesting uh, quote uh, from Orst Zakadarsky, uh, who is the senior policy advisor at the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress recently in, uh, in the Golden Mail in regards to uh, sanctions uh, of uh, Russian assets in uh, Canada. Um, and I wanted to uh, check in with Orst uh, and find out uh, what his attitude is to sanctions, what he thinks about what Canada is doing, and, you know, frankly, what's going on in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, are we doing enough? What's going to happen, etc.? Uh, Orst, let me uh, make sure I pronounce your name right. Uh, Orst, I pro- apologize. Zakadalski. Yep, that's right. Excellent. Is uh, is quite an interesting gentleman. He is, as I mentioned, the senior policy advisor at the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. He graduated from uh, U of T with an MA in European Russian and Eurasian Studies. Uh, he's a strategic planner, a Canadian Ukrainian Governance and Development Project a researcher with uh, the Ukrainian-Canadian Research and Documentation Center, a researcher with the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter, a researcher of the Holomandor Research and Education Consortium, a political analyst and Canadian bilateral election observer um, on the mission to Ukraine in 2012, 2013, 2014, and 2019, a senior analyst with the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, and a senior policy advisor with the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. Wow, quite the resume, sir. Yeah, that w- that wasn't all at once, though. Okay. <laughs> that so was welcome con- to the show. And, consecutive uh, thank you for activities. Us. Tell me, uh, number one, um, what you think about sanctions? Are we doing enough? Well, so I mean, on on Russian sanctions, I think there's a couple of different issues, right? One is, are we putting on enough sanctions? And uh, Canada has certainly. Uh, implemented sanctions together with our allies uh, on a wide range of uh, Russian individuals and and, and uh, economic sectors. But the second issue is, are we implementing those sanctions effectively? And uh, in terms of the amount of Russian assets that have been frozen in Canada, we know from the RCMP that the number, fr- the amount frozen is about $121 million. Uh, and that number has remained static basically since June. So despite the fact that we are adding more and more sanctions, more and more individuals and entities to our sanctions lists, the amount of money frozen remains the same. So that is a concern and that me, you know, could indicate, probably does indicate that we aren't doing all that good a job at identifying and freezing these assets. So are you uh, saying that we're just saying stuff and not doing it? No, we are doing some stuff, but we are not as effective at doing it as uh, we would like to see. We would like to see the government uh, uh, 
dedicate more resources and more effort to actually identifying and and freezing these assets uh and then of course the next the next step will be to uh seize them and sell them and turn the money over to ukraine for reconstruction and who does the seizing is that the rcmp the government would seize it. It would be a, uh, the government would have to have a, a an order developed to seize it and then to and then to turn it over to Ukraine. So that is new. That is new power that the government has. That was uh, in the last uh, federal budget. And how much do you think has been seized and sent to Ukraine so far? None. None. So no, I don't. I don't it? think. I know. I know that it's none. So we've sanctioned these people. We've frozen some assets, but we haven't done anything we, to actually get the assets and, and send it to Ukraine. So the, the assets are frozen and, you know, can't be. So there's 120 million frozen, though that money can't be moved. So the next step is to seize it, which is, you know, I mean, it's a legal process. So it's not frankly surprising that it, it's taking a, a bit of time. Um, and then after that it would be you know either sold or the asset turned over to ukraine so but i mean before we seize we have to also be you know better at identifying because 120 million dollars does not i mean it, 120 million is a lot of money but it's not a lot of money in in this context and the the kind of you know worrying flag is that why has nothing been identified in you know what june july august september october six months right the number the number frozen the number frozen in june was 123 million and now and the number frozen now is is 121 million so what has been identified in the last month last six months is nothing so what do you think the issue is that the government's just not doing its job or the rcp's not doing its job or we don't have any more. I, well, I mean, as far as here, what? As far as I understand, from what I understand, the 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 issue is that there is not the capacity to identify these assets. Frequently, they are, uh, you know, hidden shell companies, numbered whatever these sorts of uh, things. But I mean, basically, as far as I read it, it right now the way it works is that uh, they have to be proactively disclosed. So if a you know bank institution whatever holds an asset, they have to tell the RCMP that they ha that it's there. There's no kind of team trying to find these assets. Well, when I think so about it, it's, it's uh, on the it's on the institution to to tell the RCMP that it's there, rather than on the government to go and find, and it. find it. And that's problematic. I mean, you know the the government should be going out and looking for this stuff, especially because, you know, it's often shell companies and, you know, third parties and whatever, and it's hidden. And so the, the institution holding it may not even know that it's a sanctioned entity or a sanctioned asset. Right. But if they have a positive obligation to go out and identify it, and inform the government, one would think they would do a fairly rigorous job of, of trying to find that. They certainly did during the truck convoy. Well, the but the like, if the government has sanctioned 
a large amount of individuals and entities in a short amount of time, which is what has happened here and which is very welcome. Uh, the capacity for identifying if whether any of those assets are here, you know, I think falls on the government to go and, and find it. Like it, it is that it is the government that has said we will, you know, sanction, freeze, and uh, seize these assets. So that's that's great. So now go and do it. Of course, do sanctions work? Yeah, <laughs> they do. Okay. Uh, they do. I mean, the Russian economy is in, uh, you know a lot of trouble and the only really the last kind of thing left for Russia is its uh, uh, extractive resource well basically oil and gas is all that's left I mean the 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 Russians relied very heavily on Western technology all almost all of that is effectively not being uh, the Russians can't buy it anymore um, so, you know, sanctions are effective. The, the, the issue is that they have to be fulsome and they have to be uh, uh, targeted at uh, where the most pain can be. And that for Russia is uh, the natural resources industry, right? So, I mean, we just saw, I think yesterday, the day before the European Union and the G7 countries put a cap on Russian oil uh, purchases, right? So that yep. any, any country that signed on will not pay more than $60 a barrel for Russian oil. I mean, but, you know, they're still making revenue that way. So, I mean, the more effective sanction would be to not buy the oil at buy, all. Buy, buy, buy the oil at all. Exactly. No question. We're going to take a break for some messages and come back with uh, Orst in just two minutes. Stay with us, everybody. We're going to talk about what's going on in uh, Ukraine, what the Ukrainian Canadian Congress is doing, what they think that Canada is doing. Are we doing enough? Uh, is NATO doing enough? Etc. Stay with us, everybody. Stream us live at Saga960AM.ca. Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. We're talking tonight with Orst Zelkadowski, who is the Senior Policy Advisor at the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress in Ottawa. Um, and uh, we've been talking uh, about sanctions. We're going to talk a little bit more broadly now about what's going on um, uh, in Ukraine. Um, is Canada doing enough? Is NATO doing enough? Etc. But maybe, Orst, uh, you could just tell me a little bit about, you know, what's your job? What 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 is your job and what is the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress doing in regards to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, are you, uh, you know, just trying to muster support in Canada? Or what, like, what's 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 your uh, strategic uh, objective right now? Well, so the first, let me. So the Ukrainian Canadian Congress is the umbrella organization of the of Ukrainian community organizations in Canada. So we are a, f a federation of all the uh, organized community. Uh, organizations throughout the country. Uh, so our, uh, I mean, in terms of Ukraine, we have two priorities, three really priorities. The first is to ensure 
uh, as much Canadian uh, support for Ukraine. The second is to ensure that Canada is doing enough to counter Russia. And the third is to support um, Ukrainian displaced people who are here in Canada. So across the country, uh, a lot of our organizations are helping uh, the, you know, more than 70,000 Ukrainian citizens who are in Canada uh, who have fled the war. 70,000. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah. You think there's 70,000 Ukrainians that have fled the war and are in Canada today? No. Well, we, we know there are. Uh, I mean, the, the the government, the Canadian government has a program called the uh, Emergency Authorization for Travel Program, which was instituted in March, uh, which for Ukrainian citizens, they can come to Canada and they have a basically a three-year visa to work, go to school, et cetera. And so 70,000 people have uh, arrived on that program, over 70,000. Now, I, I think that the statistic is that there's uh, more Ukrainians in Canada than anywhere other than Ukraine and Russia. Is that correct? It's the second largest uh, diaspora? Yeah, it's about 100, well, uh, 1.4 million, uh, give or take, identify as uh, Ukrainians. And so do you think most of these people are visiting family and friends or are they people that are just here with no support network? Uh, it depends. Some it, it's both. Some some people are uh, here and staying with family or friends, and and some are are here and and need kind of more community and and government support. So, uh, you know, throughout the country, the the UCC, our branches, our organizations, part of the work that we're doing in in other than directly supporting Ukraine is to uh, provide resources, provide a place to go, provide help, assistance to, to the people who've, who've arrived here and who are uh, displaced because of Russia's war. Uh, the second part of that too is the, uh, with the Canada-Ukraine Foundation, the UCC is, has the Ukraine humanitarian appeal where we've uh, raised about over $40 million to about half of that has already been either spent or, or allocated. Uh, and that is for, uh, various humanitarian relief causes in, in, in Ukraine. So those are our two kind of community focuses. Um, I mean, you asked me about my job, what I do, I, a lot of my time, uh, is spent on communication. So doing interviews like this uh, but a lot of it is also spent on government relations and developing policy recommendations that we would like to see the uh, Canadian government implement what type of policy recommendations so I mean our you know the the most important ones are that we would like to see as much uh, weaponry and training provided to Ukraine's armed forces who are you know heroically defending their country 
the next is uh, financial assistance to the Ukrainian government. I mean, the the Russia's war, you know, and and the targeting, you know, purposeful targeting of civilian infrastructure is is taking a you know horrible toll on Ukraine's economy. So we would like to see uh, economic assistance to Ukraine. I mean, we just saw the the Ukraine sovereignty bond was just issued, and that's I think a kind of a, a breakthrough idea that the Canadian government had, where uh, Canadians could buy a bond that's basically a for their purpose a Canadian government bond but it goes to all the money raised and it was it was a 500 million dollar bond all of that money goes to the Ukrainian government but guaranteed by our our government so it's a way for the Ukrainians to to basically raise money for the state budget um and the next i mean the other the other big policy recommendation that we have is for a, for as tough a stand for canada to take a, uh, as tough a stand on russia uh, as possible so the thing we are now pushing uh, hard on is to have canada uh, recognize russia as a state supporter of terrorism and to list uh, several russian organizations including the, the russian military as a terrorist organization uh, we think that it is incumbent on Canada and, and our allies to fully isolate Russia. I mean, we, we have done a lot in, in isolating Russia, but not. we certainly haven't gone as far as we could. So that is... De declaring them a terrorist, uh, a state-sponsored terrorist organization, what does that do? So that uh, basically isolates them diplomatically. It puts us a whole bunch of restrictions on any uh, on a whole slew of trade goods. Now we we don't what we did was we lifted most favored nations status with Russia. So Russia uh, effectively can't really trade with Canada because there's a 30% tariff on anything that, that they do. But that I mean, the next step would be a basically a full trade embargo. Um, and it lifts state immunity from Russia, which is the most kind of important thing, right? That that Russian state assets that are in Canada would be subject to seizure. Um, and so, you know, the, like the, the embassy or, you know, Russian state company, if they have property in Canada, buildings, whatever, all of that would be subject to uh, to seizure. So that I think is, uh, you know, the, the it, it is Canada and other allies doing it together would would would, uh, um, you know, kind of fully isolate Russia and turn Russia into an international pariah, which is more than deserved. You don't think they already uh, are? Well, I mean, not really. Really? Well, there's. I mean, Canada hasn't even thrown out any Russian diplomats. And they like, still went we, to we the G20. Are, sorry? And they went to the G20. It wasn't the president, but the Minister of Finance, uh, Foreign Affairs. Uh, the equivalent went, of Lavrov, Sure, Lavrov went to the G20. I mean, this is not a... It's it's they've, They're more isolated than they were, but they're not fully isolated by any stretch. 
um, you know, we're one of the few countries, it's, it's frankly kind of baffling as to why, but we are one of the few countries that hasn't thrown out any Russian diplomats. I mean, most European countries have paired the amount of Russian diplomats allowed in the country down to the bare minimum, and Canada hasn't thrown anyone out since February. So why do you think? A, I don't know. I really don't. I don't like I don't have an explanation for it. Has the government answered you? Not really. Not on that issue. I mean, it's just it's a strange kind of they don't want to do it. And, what and has we're, Canada we're, done in regards to our embassy in Moscow? Uh, it's there and providing the services it always provided. So no change? Uh, not as far as I know. Should there be? Yeah, I don't I don't like I don't understand why we still have diplomatic relations with Russia. Like, what is it we're talking about? Like, I, I honestly don't understand the value of having a relationship with a terrorist country. So, and, 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 you know, we see in the newspaper and on the, the evening news day after day after day, Russian atrocities uh, um, and, and what I think most normal people would call terrorist acts. Why haven't they been declared a uh, state-sponsored terrorist organization? Um, I think it is one of those things that takes, unfortunately, takes a, a, a long time to for the idea to kind of form in policymakers' heads. So, I mean, it's been uh, something we've been pushing on for, for a long time, uh, frankly, since before the full-scale invasion. I mean, in, tw in 2014, the Russian military shot down a international civilian airliner. Uh, they have attacked uh, citizens on, in, in the UK with, you know, uh, chemical weapons. I mean, these were all acts that took place before February 20, uh, 24th. Um, since then, of course, their terrorist activity has, has markedly increased, and we're starting to see movement in that direction. The U.S. Congress has passed resolutions in both houses calling on the president to list Russia. Uh, the NATO Parliamentary Assembly last week passed a resolution declaring Russia a terrorist state. So it's a declarative resolution, but it's 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 nevertheless important. And also the European Parliament, which is the, the, the legislature of the EU, passed a similar resolution calling on member states to, to list Russia as a terrorist state. So Canada hasn't. The the House has not passed the resolution, and and the Canadian government has not listed Russia. So, have you called upon the Canadian government to do so? Yeah, we have called on the Canadian government to do so, and we will continue to do it. And we plan to, uh, uh, you know, make this a, a an issue on which we're we're going to be pushing hard over the next. And they haven't months. even responded. They haven't told you why they haven't done it. Um. I mean, not any any reason that would be a good one. <laughs> I mean, they've told us that they uh, that uh, you know it's a very big step, and it's you know it may you know impede uh, negotiations or all this. I mean, it's not. These are not. Uh, I mean, reasons that we find compelling or or or. Uh, 
reasons that are, you know, would would get us to change our minds, especially, you know, with with momentum for doing this building in our allied countries, I think Canada needs to kind of step up here. And I mean, it would be good if we were the first to do it. And that would certainly provide a, a an example for other countries, just like with the, I mean, we were the first country to issue these sovereignty bonds. And it is important that we did it for us for Ukraine, but it's also important as an encouragement for other countries to follow Canada's example. So I think I think the listing as a terrorist state, I think Canada is in a position to do it. And I think uh, uh, it can be uh, uh, something that that once done by someone, it kind of breaks the dam and and other countries will do it. So, you know, it is our sincere hope that Canada will be the first to do it and we will uh, you know, do everything we can to make sure that that happens. Militarily, do you think Canada is doing enough? I think that Canada is doing a lot. Uh, it, you know, we have, there will be, I think with this last budget, it'll be about a billion dollars in the last uh, year in weapons and military equipment. Uh, crucially, one of the th the other very important things we're doing is providing training to Ukrainians uh, in the together with the United Kingdom and the U.S. in Great Britain now. So Canada had had a long. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch -ch -chumba. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch -ch -chumba. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, training military training mission in Ukraine since 2015. They had to leave when, when the full-out war uh, full-out Russian invasion started, but the, the training has resumed in the UK. So can I, I would say Canada is doing uh, a lot, and uh, so are our allies. But we would like to see more because you know the the viciousness and brutality of the Russian uh, attack is uh, you know devastating to Ukrainian civilians. Uh, to Ukrainian cities and towns. I mean, you know, it's a, th this winter, Russians are now targeting um, uh, electric energy and heating infrastructure to basically, I mean, the, the, the point is to kill as many civilians as possible, right, with cold and darkness and make Ukraine unlivable. And so, you know, the the more weapons we provide and the quicker we do it, the quicker Ukraine will win this war. Um, and, you know, because of the way that the Russians are fighting this war, you know, the, the, the speed and um, quantity of the weapons that Canada and our allies are provided at, we think needs to be uh, uh, increased and that, that they need to be provided quicker. Uh, but you know, I I do think that it you know we need we also need to acknowledge that yeah Canada and our allies have done a lot. But uh, there seems to be a great resistance 
for Ukraine to actually attack Russia. Um, and a lot of that sort of uh, impetus has come from uh, from NATO countries that uh, are supplying a lot of the arms, that they don't want uh, escalation um, by way of Russia actually attacking, sorry, Ukraine actually attacking Russian um, uh, military uh, or you know, infrastructure, um, though there have been a few, but not a lot, um, uh, across the border into Russia. Is that a right decision, do you think, given what Russia is doing in Ukraine? No, it's not. I mean, it's it's a it's a very kind of strange uh, uh, handcuffing of Ukraine. Now, I mean, Ukraine is hitting targets with their own weapons. They just can't use weapons we supply right so no one in nato is saying ukraine you know you can't hit russian military installations but you do it with the weapons that you have that you produce and you can't use you know we will not give you weapons that you can use to target russian targets in russia um i think the the it starts with a faulty assumption that you can somehow you know keep the Russians from escalating. And frankly, what we see the Russians do, I mean, I don't know what an escalation would be. I mean, they are doing everything. They, the, you know, the, the, the kind of just wanton cruelty and brutality. I mean, what more can we provoke them to? Right. Like it, it's a strange like we are we are we are saying on the one hand that we will be with Ukraine until Ukraine wins, which is a laudable thing to say. And we are certainly glad that they say it. But on the other hand, saying, OK, you have to win, but you can't do A, B, C, D, E, F and G in order to win. So it's I mean, I think that, you know, the longer this goes on, the the less of that kind of restraint, or it's not even really restraint. It's sort of handcuffing the Ukrainians. You think those handcuffs will come off eventually? One would hope. I mean, as as these kind of as this you know cruelty and brutality of the Russians increases, I think you know it is it is more and more. Uh, difficult to justify um, telling the Ukrainians, well, you know, you can't, you, you you can do this, but you can't do that. And then, and the other part of it is that, you know, th like Russia already thinks that they're at war with NATO. Like it's a, you know, this sort of, uh, the, the Russian idea here is that Ukraine is somehow you know, Ukrainians don't have any agency and it's not them. It's somehow we've convinced them to do this. So, you know, to say, well, we can't, Ukrainians can't hit Russian targets. It's like they already think you let them. So it doesn't matter. Right. Um, so it's I, I look, I, I mean, I think overall the, the Western support and NATO and, and EU and the US and Canada overall, the support has been uh, uh, fulsome and, you know, laudable, but there are there are things that we could be doing. And there are things that we could be helping the Ukrainians with that we that we aren't doing and you know, but that's not to kind of 
change the overall picture, which has been, you know, frankly, quite steadfast support for Ukraine, which which is, you know, welcome and 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 necessary. We're chatting tonight with Orst Zelkodelsky, um, who is the senior policy advisor at the Ukrainian and Canadian Congress about uh, about Canadian support uh, for Ukraine. Uh, we're going to take a break for a couple of minutes and come back. And uh, I'm going to ask uh, Orst, who graduated from U of T with an MA in European and Russian uh, and Eurasian studies. What caused this? Where does it come from? What's the history behind it? Stay with us, everybody. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca. Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour in Saga 960. My guest tonight is Orst uh, Zelkodelsky, who is the Senior Policy Advisor at the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress in Ottawa. Uh, Orst, you actually graduated with a master's uh, at the U of T in European, Russian, and Eurasian studies. You know, um, I think the statistic is that one in four Canadians has a blood relative living in the United States. There are more uh, Canadians in the United States than any other country in the world. Uh, we share a uh, you know a large unprotected uh, a border i understood that russia and ukraine were sort of similar that something like one in four ukrainians has a blood relative living in in russia um that uh, people in in ukraine spoke a lot of them spoke russian a lot of them went to a an equivalent to the russian orthodox church uh, that there were more ukrainians in russia than anywhere else in the world other than in ukraine what happened why did this what 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 caused this? One would have think one would have thought, you know, they were part of one country at one point in time, Ukrainians and Russians. The USSR. Well, I mean they were part of one empire in the sense that Russia has a centuries-long history of colonialism of neighboring nations. And so the Soviet Union was nothing but an extension of the former Russian Empire that that was dressed up in these sort of slogans of whatever socialism and and, and friendship of nations, which was all uh, a cover for Russian colonialism and Russian imperialism. And so what happened was that the Soviet Union collapsed under the weight of its own hypocrisies and, and, and adequacies. The Ukrainian people declared a state, an independent state that, that had been, you know, the hope and dream of, of generations of Ukrainians. Um, and for uh, a while, Russia let the state the Ukrainian state exists without attacking it militarily, but but since 1991, in, in various ways, the Russian the Russian state put pressure on Ukraine to reintegrate itself with Russia, which was basically you know an attempt to continue the Russian imperial or colonial project. And then in 2014, when Ukrainians decided as a sovereign people that their future was in the European Union and that they wanted to integrate with uh, the with Western institutions, Russia first attacked 
an occupied Crimea and then Eastern Ukraine. And there was a sort of, you know, low level war for eight years. And then in February deciding, I don't, I'm not, I don't know <laughs> what the Russian thinking was or why they did it, but they decided to, to launch a full, full out military attack on Ukraine. So this is, I mean, it's not a, it is, it is a, a, a brutal contemporary phase of centuries of Russian uh, attempts to subjugate and, and uh, colonize the Ukrainian people in Ukraine. Um, so this is, you know, the last, the, the latest and, and, you know, very brutal, brutal phase of the manifestation of Russian imperialism. It's amazing to me that they actually could think they could ever, you know, occupy the country and and then have the country, the countrymen become citizens of this new big Russian state uh, after what they've done. It's it's astonishing. Um, in 2003, you were a researcher with the Holodomor Research and Education Consortium. Um, I think uh, a week or two ago, there was a, a day in, 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 in memory of the Holodomor. Um, some people think that what's going on now with uh, the attack on uh, on the civilian infrastructure that you were mentioning is a potential repeat of that. Tell uh, tell us all, please, what the Holodomor was, and and do you think that this is potentially a an attempt to repeat that? Well, so in in 1932 and 1933, the Soviet regime uh, basically created a famine. Uh, in Ukraine, where, you know, between five and seven million people were purposefully starved to death. Uh, food was confiscated uh, from villages, uh, from farms. Farmers were forced onto, onto collective farms. Basically, the regime took away any food and, and punished anyone who tried to, to hide any uh, food. Now, the, the reason for it was because of a nationally conscious movement for Ukrainian independence that was at the time centered in the countryside, which is, uh, you know, the, the sort of where, where Ukrainian national consciousness was developing at the time. And so this was the Soviet attempt to, to destroy the Ukrainian nation and destroy the Ukrainian idea in order to subjugate the territory on which Ukrainians lived. Um, and, you know, now, I mean, we are now seeing the Russians do the same thing using different methods because they don't control the territory, which they did at the time. Um, now they're bombing it. So it is a, it is, the goal is the same and the, 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 the Russian idea is the same, which is to subjugate this land and its people and the methods they're using are different, but, you know, also brutal. Um, tell, tell us what those methods so are. It's, it's, it's now it's, it's bombing uh, electrical generating stations, um, power, supply, uh, 
Well, it's bombing everything. It's bombing hospitals. It's bombing schools. It's bombing playgrounds. It's bombing apartment buildings. It's bombing power stations. I mean, they can't, you know, the, the Ukrainian army has basically pushed them out of, of a lot of territory that Russia occupied in, uh, you know, the first months of the war, February, March, there was Russian offensives that took over some territory. The Ukrainians have pushed them out. They can't fight the Ukrainian army, so they're bombing them from the sky. And But they're bombing civilians. And so, you know, that, that I mean, part of what the West is supplying to Ukraine and, and hopefully will supply more of is, is anti-air and air defense systems and you know we have seen those be fairly effective so these these bombings are costing you know russia is losing planes and missiles and whatever and they're not hitting all not everything is hitting but i mean enough is getting through where where it's creating a a humanitarian catastrophe um and which will inevitably be worse in the winter as, as it gets colder uh you know, no heat, no power in the winter is is uh, is devastating. Uh, you know, Ukrainians are are rebuilding this infrastructure fairly quickly, and I mean, you know, I've I'm not an expert on on kind of electrical power and all that stuff, but but you know, everything I've read, people are saying that the rate at which the Ukrainian electrical workers are are re uh, attaching grids and 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 uh, renovating the power lines and all that is is you know amazing and that there's going to be you know textbooks written about how to do this stuff in wartime but still i mean every you know every week or every 10 days there's a massive russian missile attack on on ukrainian civilian infrastructure and and when they fire all at once it's hard to you can't can't stop them know, all can't stop them all so some of them are going to get through we're chatting today with Orst Zelkonowski, who is a senior policy advisor at the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. We've talked about sanctions. We've talked about uh, Canadian um, sanctioning Russian um, uh, and identifying assets, but not a lot more assets and not actually realizing on those assets uh, and getting the cash and sending it to, to Ukraine. We're talking about, uh, about whether Canada should declare Russia a uh, state-sponsored terrorist organization. Uh, we've talked about uh, Canada and whether we've been um, supporting Ukraine uh, militarily enough, uh, and we've talked about uh, Holodomor and uh, and 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 whether what's going on now with the attack on infrastructure in Ukraine is is comparable, and we've also talked about uh, anti-Semitism in Ukraine and whether this uh, um, propaganda from Putin um, about you know anti-denazifying uh, Ukraine had any justification and. Uh, and on all of those things, Orst has been very frank and honest, and I really appreciate it. We're going to take a final break and come back with some concluding comments. And I want to ask uh, Orst, who, uh, who I, th- I guess four different times went to observe elections um, in Ukraine, I'm going to ask him about democracy and uh, freedom uh, in just two minutes. Stay with us, everybody. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga Night 60. We're chatting tonight with Orst uh, Zelkodelsky, who is the Senior Policy Advisor at the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress in Ottawa. Um, he's got an incredible resume. Uh, he's got uh, uh, an MA in European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies. 
Uh, he's worked on numerous different uh, uh, assignments uh, that have got to do with Canada, Ukraine, um, uh, Ukrainian Jewish encounter, uh, uh, bilateral election observer, etc. And you actually went four times, 2012, 2013, 2014, and 2019, to observe elections in Ukraine. You're now the senior policy advisor of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. When you observe those elections, is Ukraine democratic? Is there freedom? Yes and yes. I mean, uh, it had, after independence, there was a sort of tilt towards authoritarianism that was stopped by a popular revolution in 2004. It was called the Orange Revolution, basically a uh, a fraudulent election had to be rerun because the people went out into the streets and demanded that their voices be heard. Uh, a similar revolution called the Revolution of Dignity in, in the winter of 2013-2014 uh, when uh, the regime uh, first reneged on a uh, association deal they they had promised to sign with the European Union and reneged under Russian pressure, caused mass protests that the regime then tried to put down that was unsuccessful. So uh, Ukraine is pluralist, it's democratic, and it is free. And uh, the, the problems that it has are uh, uh, you know, part of the maturing of a democracy. So if you have problems with rule of law and things like that, these are these are typically institutions that get better with time. And yeah. as long as you have the the pluralism and the and the fact that you know society is is you know can demand things of the government these things are reformed and and fixed right uh and so that is the process in which ukraine was when the war started i mean in the kind of eight years eight years of 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 a low level comparably low level war with russia from 2014 to 2022 part of what the authorities were doing was this sort of reform process that was you know there was all, and as there should be a tension between civic society and the government and, you know, the media was covering everything. Everyone was yelling at each other. Uh, the, the civil society wanted the government to move faster. The government didn't want it, but this is, that's what democracy is. And so, um, or some now, people of course, that. now, of course, there is no politics because there's a war. So everyone is focused on winning the war as they should be. And, and I'm certain that they they will win. Or some people have said this isn't a, uh, a war between Ukraine and Russia. This is a war between democracy or the West and Russia uh, or or at least Ukrainian is the is 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 stopping um, and, and protecting uh, democracy in the West. What do you think? Uh, I think if Ukraine were to lose, which it won't, but uh, if we were to, to presuppose that it could, uh, that would be the beginning of a very dark era in, 
in Europe, which uh, you know would show again that that uh, you know might makes right, and uh, whoever is more vicious and more brutal can control territory again. Uh, you know, luckily we're seeing that you know because of the uh, uh, you know just incredible bravery and courage of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian army, and and you know thanks also to support from uh, the United States, Canada, our European allies, Ukraine is winning and will win. Um, but certainly. You know, part of part of this war is a war of, of Russia trying to subjugate Ukraine, and part of it is is this, you know, mistaken Russian idea of imperialism and colonialism that that should Ukraine fall will have, uh, you know, very very negative implications for for the rest of Europe. Um, and so in, in that sense, yes, it is a, it's a war of, uh, you know, democracy and freedom against tyranny and oppression. Democracy and freedom against tyranny and oppression. That's a pretty good summary. Sounds like uh, we should uh, do a lot more, even more than we're doing right now. And I think that the role that you're playing to encourage uh, Canada to uh, send more arms uh, to uh, to seize more assets, to uh, sell those assets and send the, the proceeds to issue a sovereignty bond. And I can't agree with you more. Uh, you know, if, if, if there's anything that is not more obvious to us um, watching the scenes of, uh, of devastation in Ukraine and of war crimes in Ukraine, that Russia is a state-sponsored uh, um, terrorist organization, I don't know what is more obvious. Uh, and so I do agree that uh, Canada uh, and uh, and other countries should be uh, should be stating that and stating it loudly and clearly and uh, and 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 making sure that the Russian people know that that's this is where it has come to. Um, and uh, I think I think in the end, the only way that we're going to end up um, having uh, any kind of peace is is if there is regime change in uh, in Russia. Um, Putin's got to go. One day soon, hopefully. That's our show for tonight. Orst Zakalevsky, thank you so much for joining us from the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. Uh, really appreciate everyone joining us this evening. I'm on every Monday through Friday at 6 o'clock on 9.60 a.m. Good night, everybody. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca.